If you're able, would you remain standing for a moment longer? We're going to read 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. This is the end of our series on the first epistle of John. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. This is the word of our Lord. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that Christ would be exalted. We pray that I as a preacher would decrease so that Christ might increase. We pray that your spirit would use it to point us to him for asking Christ's name. We all say, Amen. Please be seated. I should have mentioned earlier that we're very thankful that Ben is back. We've been praying for Ben and Christy and the boys, and Ben is back with us. Thankful for that. So coming to the end of an epistle of a, of a book, uh, uh, as in your preaching, is, um, it's happy and sad at the same time. Uh, you get you grow attached to the book that you're preaching from. This is a, the 23rd message from the book of First uh, John, and, and we're finishing it in God's good providence today. And uh, uh, it's like a little bit like a, a kid leaving your house in good terms. You're you're happy that that happened and that they are following the Lord and so on. But we're going to miss them. It's unlike that a pastor. Um, a faithful pastor who preached through the Bible and remains in the same church for a long time ever will preach through a book twice in his life. So once you finish it, you're kind of done for, for the rest of your life if you stay in the same uh, church for a long time. So we'll say, Lord willing, goodbye to First John today. And as, as John brings this letter to the beloved children in Ephesus. Remember, he's writing this letter likely to the church of Ephesus. Uh, he was a pastor there. Talk about a, pa- a church that had like a, a Hall of Fame pastor founded by Paul, pastored by Apollos, followed by, by um, uh, uh, Timothy, and then John. I mean, the next guy is doomed to, be, to fail after that. Uh, Hall, uh, Hall of Fame team that pastored that particular church. And he's bringing this letter to this church that he obviously loves. You can see that, and every time he refers to them as my little children, he considered himself their father, and he loved them with that fatherly love. And as he comes to the end of this first epistle, he reveals with them all the articles of faith that he covered throughout the epistle, all the things he taught them in this letter. And there are three things that he wants to make sure they remember as they finish considering this letter. All three things have to do with what Christian, a Christian knows. If you, if you notice as you read, there's three times that John says, we know, we know, we know. So he ends this letter with these three things that 
He wants the Christian to know. And remember, verse 13 of chapter 5 already told us what was the whole purpose of this letter, that we may know that we know Jesus Christ, to give us assurance of faith, assurance of salvation, and perseverance in faith. And here are three things the Christian knows, three things that we can take to the bank in these verses. John Stott says that the apostle ends this letter with three clear and candid certainties. And that's what we're going to try to see today, these three clear and candid certainties. The first one is in verse 18, where there John tells us that we know that regeneration results in sanctification. Look at verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that regeneration results in sanctification. The one who has been born of God is the one who has come to spiritual life. Throughout the Bible, we have this idea of a new birth, and the Bible uses different terms to talk about that. In, in Jeremiah 30, uh, Ezekiel 36, the same idea is taught in the concept of a heart transplant. In Ezekiel 36, uh, God says that he's going to reach into the hearts of his people and going to replace the heart of stone, the heart of the natural man, the natural woman, with a heart of flesh that is able to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same concept as in verse 18. In John 3, Jesus says that unless you're born from above, you cannot know him. And then later on in the same chapter, he says that unless you're born again, you cannot know him. These are the ones who have been born of God into a spiritual life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that this new birth is, is a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that if you have been born again from Christ, all things are new, the old things have passed away. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about coming to life. You who are dead in your trespasses and, and sins, he has made alive in Jesus Christ. Out of his, uh, the abundance of his love, by his grace, he brought you who believe in Jesus Christ, to life in Him. Paul, again in Colossians, tells us that this same thing, this coming to spiritual life that John describes in verse 18, he speaks of it in terms of being delivered from the power of the kingdom of darkness and being placed as a citizen of the kingdom of the Son whom God loves. All these things are addressing this very thing here that in verse 18, when John talks about being born of God. Being born of God. All these terms are ways to express the doctrine of regeneration, of being born of God. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's who you are. You are born of God. And a person who has been born again will not keep on sinning. If you look at verse 18 in our translation, it says, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. The way that this, this expression, does not sin, is written is actually a continuing thing. Those that are born of God do not keep on sinning. Do not have a life that's marked by continual sinning. Now, not keeping on sinning does not refer to, a, to sin in general, but to particular sins. The one who has been born again will not keep on committing the same sins over and over and over again without any repentance. His or her life will, be, will not be characterized by a particular sin. That's what John tells us concerning the one who was born 
of God. This does not mean that the one who is born again will not struggle with sin. But it will be a struggle. Do you get the difference? John's not saying, yeah, a believer, a believer is never going to sin. But he is saying that the believer, the one who's been born of God, will struggle with sin, will not give in to sin, will fight sin. And when he falls into sin, when she falls into sin, she will repent and walk with the Lord. So the struggle is there. It's going to be a struggle, not comfortable living with sin. Uh, Stott again says, sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet. They cannot live together in harmony. So if you are living together in harmony is a sign, in harmony with sin is a sign that you have not been born of God. If you're okay with sin in your life, if you're, if you're not, if, if the gospel is not driving you to repentance of particular sins, look at your heart and see if Jesus is actually there. The idea that a person can be born from God and continue unchanged as far as sin goes is not scriptural. It's contrary to what the Bible teaches. And it's, it was exactly what the false teachers were teaching the church that caused John to write this letter. They're teaching that you can come, you can be born of God, and yet just live as if you were nothing changed with you. And John says, no. And the whole Bible says that. Years ago, there was a debate in the church about the possibility, and I mean the church, I don't mean this church, the, the church in America, about, about regarding the possibility of accepting Jesus, which is not language I like using, but accepting Jesus as your Savior, but not accepting Jesus as your Lord. There's these two sides. One side, the accepting Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord, was generally represented by a man by the name of Zane Hodges, who was a professor at Dallas, Theological seminary. And on the other side, the son, no, 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 no. It's a package deal. It's either Lord and Savior or nothing. The main spokesperson was John MacArthur, the pastor at Grace Community Church down in California. This is exactly what this verse is teaching us. This is exactly what the scriptures teach. You cannot come to Jesus as your Savior if he's not your Lord as well. Remember the occasion, the, 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 the episode, the account of the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Remember Silas and Paul were arrested. They were in jail. They were singing hymns at midnight in fetters. And then the, something happened, earthquake, the doors opened, and the jailer thought that all the people had run away and he was going to kill himself because that's what's going to happen to him anyway if the, the prisoners had ran away. And Paul and Silas said, no, no, hey, no, everybody's here. Don't do that. Perhaps the jailer had been listening to their hymns and what they were talking. And the jailer comes to the point, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? Remember the, remember the answer that Paul gave them? Believe in whom? Believe in Jesus Christ, right? No. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved and your household. Faith is in this person whose title is Lord. That's what it means to believe in Jesus Christ, that He is the master of your life, that your life is being changed, and now you are serving Him. In other words, no child of God is a sinner. And you might say, oh, 
so what hopes there? Because I, you know, just had a big fight with the wife on the way here. Uh, you know, and that was a simple thing on my part, and and so on. This is what I mean, and this is important. No child of God is identified by his or her sin. That's not who you are. That's not what your life display. You're not known as an angry person. You're not known as a pornographer. You're not known as whatever. You are a child of God. You're born of God. You're a Christian. And that's your identity, not your sin. Uh, If you've been following uh, the Reformed world the last few years, there's a big debate in the Presbyterian Church in America as whether you can be a gay pastor or you can be a gay Christian. Um, Can you identify yourself as gay? Even if you're not practicing still affirming the goodness of marriage between a man and a woman and so on, but uh, saying that you are gay, that's your identity. Brothers and sisters, old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. You are a new creature. And the the badge on that new creature, the, the, the scan on the forehead is Christian, one who belongs to Christ not one who belongs to sin. So don't allow this false idea that you can be identified by your sin enter into your thinking. You're Christ. You've been crucified with Christ. And the life that you now live is Christ living in you. So don't identify yourself by sin because you've been born from above. And the reason John gives us that one who has been born from God does not keep on sinning is that Jesus protects him. Look at verse 18 again. He says, You know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. John is playing on words here, and our translation is not super helpful on this one. The, the one born of God in the beginning of verse, or the verse is the Christian. But the one born of God in the second half of the verse is Christ. Instead of himself, the word should be him. He keeps him. Christ, the ultimate son of God, the one eternally begotten from the Father, the one eternally, the eternal son of God, keeps the one who has been born of God. It is Jesus who stands for you. Jesus is the one that keeps you. The whole Jesus of the Bible, fully God and fully man, divine and human, protects those that are born again. And that's you. You are so united with Christ that what you do is Christ's doing, and Christ is not going to allow you to remain in sin. He protects you. So we know that those who are born again will not keep on sinning because Jesus Christ, who is able to do so, protects them even though Satan tries hard to get them to keep on sinning. Notice how the verse 18 ends, and the wicked one does not touch him. That's an objective truth. If you are born of God, if you belong to God, the wicked one will not touch you. But guess what? He's going to try. He is going to try. Peter describes him as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Do you think that he's going to spend a lot of time on those that don't believe in Christ? No, they already belong to him. It's you and I that are going to experience the full force of Satan's attack. So Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 
Peter says, resist them, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same suffering experienced by the brotherhood in the world, but may the God of all grace, that's the one who sustains you, may the God of all grace who called you to, to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Satan is attacking you, but God of, the God of all grace is the one that's going to establish you. You don't have to fall to Satan. Jude breaks forth in the doxology at the, the very end of his epistle, and he talks about Christ in these terms. In Jude 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present your, you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Can you believe that, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ who knows you thoroughly, is happy to present you before the Father. Great joy he has to present you before the Father. So that's the first truth we learn. Regeneration leads to sanctification. You cannot be born of God if you're not being conformed to the image of his Son. If your life is not moving toward his Son, there's no reason for you to believe that you're born of God. The second thing we learn in verse 19 is that we know that the lines of separation are drawn between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The line is clear. One side you have the kingdom of God, the other side you have the kingdom of Satan. Look at verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. In Christ Jesus, we know that we are from God, literally out of God. That's the image of birth. You were out of God. We've been birthed by God by His merciful work in His our heart. We came to life, spiritual life, from God. And as we have been seeing throughout this letter, faith in the whole Christ, obedience to the commandment of God, and love for the brethren result in assurance of salvation. John says, We know that we are from God. Assurance. Is possible for us. We know that because we are out of God and the world is under the power of Satan, that there is great enmity between us and the world. Brothers and sisters, we do not live in a friendly world, in a friendly place. Right here, John says, the line is clear. This is the people of God. This is the world. And there's no friendship between the two of them. This is very important. Systems of beliefs, worldviews, or as Steve would be here, cosmologies or cos- cosmovisions, that's how he likes to say, worldviews that are not controlled by Christ, that is, that are not under submission to Christ, are satanic. That is, they are under the control of Satan. And these are the only two teams playing the game. Christ and Satan... And there's no body on the bench. You're either on playing in the Christ team or, or in Satan's t- team. Here, John says that the world is in the grip of the evil one, the ruler of this world. John, uh, Jesus calls Christ, uh, Satan, the ruler of this world in John 14. But when you feel the tugs in your heart, in the strings of your heart, of the world, remember this. This world and its ruler are passing away. This, at best, is kindling for fire. So when you think, I'm going to denounce Christ in order to 
follow the world and Satan, all you're doing is giving up eternal life for kindling. Because all is going to be burned up and recreated at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John urges us to not be in love of the world. The pride of the eye, the pride of the, the, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Because all these things have been passed away. What's eternal is Jesus Christ. And you belong to Him. You belong to Him. Systems of belief and behavior that don't acknowledge Christ are not neutral. Any system that does not acknowledge Christ is not neutral. Neutrality does not exist in creation. They're against Christ, and they're against the Christian. They are raging against God. Any system of belief or behavior that does not acknowledge Christ as the Lord of the universe is raging against Christ and is raging against you as a Christian. That's what Psalm 2 tells us, that the nations are plotting against God and His Messiah. They are raging against them, trying to throw away the fetters, as they say, the fetters that keep them attached, enslaved to God. And people thinking that, think that by rebelling against God, they are free from any sort of ruler in their lives. If I rebel against God, I can be the captain of my own ship. I can be the master of my own soul. I can control my life. The problem is, brothers and sisters, is that all hum- humanity is servant to a master. Either master sin or master righteousness. But you are a servant. You are a slave. No matter how rebellious you are, you are a slave. But you're a slave to a very cruel master, sin and Satan. Paul says that in Romans 6, verses 17 and 18, where Paul says, God, be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that from form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of, right, to, of righteousness. Christian, you're a servant. You're a slave. Human, you are a servant. You're a slave. Who are you going to be a servant, a slave to? Christ or sin? We're not to embrace these systems of doctrines or even to be the beliefs of practice, of behavior, or even being different about them. We are to tear them down. We are to tear systems of beliefs, systems of behaviors, philosophical systems that are opposed to Christ. We are to tear them down. Paul says that we are not in a battle where we use physical weapons. We are in a warfare that is spiritual, and we are to use our minds through the power of God to pull down these strongholds. We are to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Christian, is your mind controlled by Christ? Do you spend time figuring out how every area of life has to be brought into subjection of Jesus Christ. How you think about every how do you think about marriage? How do you think about working? How do you think about your free time? How do you I think Pastor Pine at camp had the illustration of an egg crate? Because the word for self-control in Greek sounds like egg crate. So you have the egg crate, you no, know, if you're if, uh, you where you put all different parts of your life in a particular spot. That's what we're supposed to be. Our life has to be in submission. And every area of life has to be thought with the mind of Christ. Are you doing that? 
Or are you mindlessly submitting yourself to the systems of this age? So the line is clear. Christ and Satan. We know that they're clear. There's no, it's complicated. It's black and white. Where are you? The third thing that we know, according to this passage in verse 20, we know that true and ultimate knowledge comes through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. We know who Jesus is, and through Him we understand the Scriptures, we understand creation, and we understand providence. Apart from Christ, you cannot figure it out life. This means that full knowledge about anything is only attainable through Jesus Christ. You only know something fully if you know that thing through Jesus Christ. And using the analogy of the faith, that is comparing Scripture with Scripture, we see that fearing God, fearing the God of the Bible, involves believing the true Christ of the Bible. In Proverbs 1.7, we're told that we're to fear the Lord, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that fear cannot happen unless you have faith in Jesus Christ. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but, the, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. People of God, the fool is the one who refuses to believe that there is a God. As a matter of fact, way to Psalm 14.1 and 53.1, where we get the, this expression, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, is, is, is a continual action. The, the fool has to keep on telling himself, has to keep on telling her, herself, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. If because, because if they stop saying that the truth that God exists is so powerful, that's just going to overcome them, and they won't be able to deny that anymore but the fool keeps on telling himself the fool keeps on telling herself there is no God there is no God because they're they don't want to admit that the only hope they have is to become a slave to Jesus Christ God cannot be known apart from his son that's the only way to know God we don't worship the same God as as anybody else We don't worship the same God as the Jews. We don't worship the same God as the Muslims. We don't worship the same God as the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, or of the liberal Christian. Because the only way to know God is through His Son. And that's it. If you say that you follow a God, but you're not in subjection to Jesus Christ, that is a false God. It's not going to deliver in the promises that it's making. The Apostle Paul says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's through Him that we know God. Brothers and sisters, the ultimate purpose of understanding is to know the Father and the Son. The ultimate purpose of having a mind that's able to think is to know the Father and to know the Son. John says that we may know Him who is true. For the Christian... Providence, everyday life, exists to this end. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8, 28? That all things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to, they are called according to His purpose. For, in verse 29, God has predestined them to be conformed to the image of His Son. Everything in your life is happening so that you can know Christ, so that you can know God better. Learn the lesson. Paul, as a representative Christian, 
says that the goal of life is to strive to know Christ better. He lists all his pedigree in Philippians chapter 3. If you want to rest on your laurels, if you want to put on, look at all my credentials, Paul will beat all of us. Born of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe that gave Israel the first king. Circumcised on the eighth day, just according to the law. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, that is, his, his family spoke Hebrew in a time that nobody else spoke Hebrew. Considering the law, a Pharisee, the most strict of the obedient sects, at least outwardly. Concerning zeal, he persecuted the church because he thought the church was denying God. And he counts all that as garbage. He counts the fact that he met Christ on the road. He counts the fact that he's an apostle, he received inspired the word of God as something also to be discarded. Why? Because he has one goal in life. And this is his goal. He counts all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, his Lord, for whom he says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Believer, are you pursuing Christ? Is he the desire of your life? What are you doing? What are you doing as a follower of Jesus Christ? Is he so precious that you're discarding everything in life to pursue him? The God whose son is Jesus Christ, the fully divine and fully human Christ, is the only true God, and we know that. Are you pursuing him? Every other God is a false God. The God of false teachers is a false God. Are you pursuing the true God through Jesus Christ? We know who he is. Are you pursuing him? And then John brings the epistle to an abrupt ending. There's no grace be with you. There's no it was nice talking to you. He finishes by saying, verse 21, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. This abrupt end is not what one would expect. Yet John wants to leave his beloved little children with this exhortation. Keep yourself from idolatry. Flee from these false gods that you are tempted to embrace. The idols that John wants to stay, us to stay away from are any notion of God that is not the God of the Bible. That's what he's been teaching throughout the epistle. Run from anything that's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we finish this epistle, listen to John. Keep yourselves from false notions concerning God. And the best way to do that is to know God better. The best way to keep yourself from idols is to know God better. That's what we try to do in this series. That's what we try to do every time that we teach or preach here in our church. There's no better, there's no greater, there's no more important subject of study than the study of God himself. The study of God must always lead to conformity to the Son. And we have a tendency to construct God after our own image. Oh, my God will never do that, you know, when we're confronted with something from the Scriptures. Well, guess that's, that's not God at all. That's you. Because we have a, like, a tendency to construct God in our own image. But to keep ourselves from idols, we study God, that we are conformed to the express image of the Godhead, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. To know Jesus, to know God. To know Jesus is to have assurance of your salvation and eternal destiny. So as John urged his church, as we put everything that we've learned from him in this first epistle, beloved brethren, flee from idolatry. Keep yourselves from idols. Know God and pursue Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that through the foolishness of the message proclaimed, you see fit to build up your church, to build up your people, to see Christ and love him. We pray that he indeed would be Lord of every area of our lives, that we would indeed die to self, and that Christ would live in us. We're asking his name. Amen.